Would you stand now with me for the reading of God's word? Psalm chapter 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. afternoon, family of God. Can we bow and pray one more time? Father, at this moment, I just want to do what your word says, which is to be still and know that you are God. We acknowledge that you are present here, all times and places exist in you, so you are with us now. And you've also given us some special promises in your word that when two or three or more of us gather in Christ's name, that you're with us in a special way. So we believe you're with us and we ask for your help. Help me, Lord, to communicate your word accurately, faithfully, in a way that brings glory to you and that draws people to Christ and that helps your people. Help all of us to hear with faith and with obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Most human beings spend a lot of our lives working really hard to suppress the truth about ourselves. We get pretty good at hiding the truth about ourselves from one another, don't we? You can come to church and talk to everybody and smile 
and sing songs to God. And there's some real deep, dark stuff going on in your heart that nobody knows about. It's very possible to do that for years on end. Human beings are intelligent and we're creative. And tragically, sometimes we use that God-given intelligence and creativity in destructive ways, including hiding the truth about ourselves. As a matter of fact, if you want to see humanity's capacity for creativity and intelligence, all you need to do is hang around some toddlers for a while. And you might have an experience that several parents in the room have probably had that you walk into a room and there's a three-year-old standing in the room and there is blue marker all over the walls of this room. And the child is covered with blue marker and the child is holding a blue marker. And you say, what happened in here? And you will hear the most amazing stories. You might even start to believe them for a second. But don't believe it. The kid with the marker drew on the wall. That's what happened, right? As we get older... We become more subtle and more sophisticated about this. And here, here's actually what's maybe even most scary. Sometimes when we are hiding the truth from one another, we don't even know we're doing it because first we hid the truth from ourselves. And we try to hide it from God. We see all this play out in Genesis chapter 3, that very famous story right at the beginning of our Bibles, which has not only caught the attention of Jewish and Christian theologians, but also philosophers and psychologists and all kinds of people who don't even believe the Bible is true because there's so much insight into human psychology in this moment of original sin when the first human beings rebel against God. And you remember the story. God comes near to them in His grace and He confronts them. And the first thing that they do is try to hide from God. Is that going to work? Every turn to your neighbor say, you cannot hide from God. He's the creator. He sees everything. He knows everything. And yet they try to hide from him. Why? Because they're feeling ashamed. And they're scared. Because they know that what they've done is wrong. And then, God in his grace doesn't stop there. He confronts them. And he asks them hard questions. Not because he needs the information, but because he's trying to lead them to self-knowledge. He's trying to lead them to a place of truth from which they can experience God's healing. But when he confronts Adam about Adam's sin, you remember what Adam says. You can go read it in Genesis 3 this week if you don't remember. But basically he says, Eve tempted me. He shifts the blame. He makes an excuse. And then God goes to Eve. And you remember in the story what happens. Eve says, the serpent tempted me. In other words, the devil made me do it. And what's fascinating about the story is... Actually, what they're saying wasn't technically a lie. There was a temptation that came from outside, and yet they didn't tell the truth, did they? You can tell a partial truth while still suppressing the truth that matters. All of us have been tempted by circumstances and by people, and perhaps by the devil. And yet when we sin, it's because there was sin inside of us. When we rebel against God, it's not because somebody else made me do it. It's because there was a darkness in me. We don't want to face that because it terrifies us. That biblical story was written thousands of years ago, but modern psychologists have a name for this. And the name is rationalization. You want to hear the definition? American Psychological Association defines rationalization like this. An ego defense in which apparently logical reasons are given to justify 
unacceptable behavior that is motivated by unconscious instinctual impulses. So you do something that's wrong and without even knowing it, you have this impulse to explain. You use that God-given gift of logic and maybe that God-given gift of creativity to explain what you did. Maybe even saying things that are true, but while you're saying true things, you're suppressing the deeper truth is that what you did was wrong and it hurt people and it came from sin that was already inside of you. It's a defense mechanism, psychologists say. I've showed it to you from Genesis 3. I've told you what modern psychologists say about this, but actually I don't need to do either one of those because you already know from your own experience, don't you? What is your impulsive response when somebody confronts you with the fact that what you've done is wrong and you have morally failed? Does anybody immediately have the impulsive response to say, yes, I was wrong and it's my fault? (laughs) We may get more sophisticated about this as we grow up, but we're really still in the place of that toddler with the marker in their hand explaining the big long story. Or the story that we read about in Genesis chapter 3. We want to explain how I've had experiences and people tempted me and there were pressures and there's extenuating circumstances and we want to hide. We want to hide from our sin. Now, the American Psychological Association, after giving us this definition of rationalization, also explains how counterproductive it is, even from a psychological standpoint. But from a Christian standpoint, we can say not only... Is it important for us to face the truth for our psychological well-being? It's important because rationalization, this tendency to hide the truth about our sin, hinders our relationship with God. And it hinders our relationship with other people. And it stops us from being able to grow spiritually, to become the people that God made us to be. It's destructive. It's self-destructive. Sin is self-destructive. And then the Need that we feel to hide our sin is also self-destructive. So why do we do it? Why do we do it? Well, I already told you the APA said it's a defense mechanism. And I would like to add to this and say that there's probably many reasons and many motivations. But I think one of them is that at bottom we are afraid. We're afraid that if our if the reality of the worst parts of ourselves were exposed, we would be rejected. If other people saw the worst parts of me, they would reject me. Maybe if I had to tell myself that those worst parts of myself really were me, maybe I would hate myself. And then down even deeper, we fear that if the truth of who we are came out, God would reject us. So this fear of rejection keeps us trapped in untruths and half-truths and self-deception. Self-deception. Our capacity for self-deception is huge. First John 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we lie. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Here's the good news. Because we know the God of love, the God of mercy, the God who revealed Himself in Jesus Christ, We don't have to be controlled by that fear. We know that the truth is already out. We may have suppressed the truth, hidden it from ourselves and others, but God already knows and he loves us anyway. Every turn your neighbor say, God already knows and God already loves you. And this 
knowledge of who God is frees us from the fear that causes us to rationalize our sin and blocks our healing and hinders our relationships with God and other people. And it frees us for the life-giving spiritual discipline of confession. That's our key word today. Everybody say confession. Confession is the spiritual discipline of telling the truth about our sin. I'll expand upon that definition and unpack it as we go. But right now, you might just jot that down. Confession is the spiritual discipline of telling the truth about our sin. I call it a discipline for several reasons. It takes work. It feels uncomfortable. We don't like it. And I call it a spiritual discipline, not only because it's necessary for our spiritual growth, but because we're not going to be able to do it without the help of the Holy Spirit. We can't face the truth about ourselves unless the Holy Spirit helps us to do so. It's a spiritual discipline. And the good news I have for you today is not only that Jesus loves you unconditionally so that you can confess your sin, but that he promises if you do confess your sin, he's going to forgive you, he's going to heal you, and that confession will lead to freedom. So now I want to dive deeper into Psalm 51 because Psalm 51 is a text which is in our Bibles for the purpose of teaching us how to confess our sins. It's a penitential psalm which is a subgenre of the Psalms of Lament. The Psalms of Lament name the brokenness of the world, and the penitential Psalms are especially focused on naming my own brokenness. And in this Psalm, uniquely, David, the author, is confessing sins. This isn't like Psalm 32, in which he says, I sinned and it was terrible, but then I confessed and God forgave me. No, we're getting to overhear the prayer before he confesses the sin, and as he confesses the sin, and he's looking forward to God's forgiveness. So if you have been living in sin and you need to deal with that, here's the psalm for you to teach you how to pray. Now as we move forward, I want to do two things. First, I want to download to you two foundational truths that you have to keep in mind if you're going to be able to practice this spiritual discipline of confession. And then, I want to walk through the psalm and show you several practical tips for learning how to confess sin rightly. Here, first, here's the two foundational truths. Foundational truth number one. If you tell the truth about your sin, God will not reject you because God's love is deeper than your sin. That's the biggest one that you need to get down deep into your heart. So I'm going to say it one more time and then I'm going to show it to you in the scriptures. If you tell the truth about your sin, if you confess it, God will not reject you because God's love is deeper than your sin. We can begin to see this just by glancing down to verse 17 of Psalm 51. Just look in your bulletin or in your Bible, our text today. It says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What does that mean? A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is David inspired by the Holy Spirit saying, if any person comes to you, God, humbled, broken over their sins, saying, God, I'm sorry and I want your forgiveness and need your help to change, God will not reject them. As a matter of fact, I like the NLT translation of this verse better. Listen to what it says, New Living Translation. It says, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. That's a clear promise from Scripture. If you come to God with a broken and humble heart confessing your sin, He will not reject you. This assurance is present in Psalm 51 from the very beginning. And it shapes the whole psalm. Glance back up to the top of the psalm. Look at verse 1. 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Before he starts confessing his sin, David says, God, you have abundant mercy and you have unfailing steadfast love. So that's why I can come to you and tell the truth and ask for your help. You hear this assurance coming out frequently in the Psalms of David. For example, in Psalm 27, verse 10, David says, For my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Here he's reminding us that sometimes even our closest and most trusted relationships with people disappoint us. The very people we thought we could depend on, that they would accept us, unconditionally reject us. But God says, you will never reject me. Sorry, David says that. So many scriptures. I got more in my notes that I have time for, but let me read you a couple more. I just want you to hear this assurance from God's words. One of my favorite is Ezekiel 33, verse 11. And in Ezekiel chapter 3, the prophet has been rebuking God's people for their sins of idolatry and injustice. They have rebelled against God. They have harmed one another. And they're, they're afraid now. We've sinned too much. God can't forgive us. I know there's somebody in here who's feeling that way. And listen to what God tells Ezekiel to say to the people who are feeling that despair. He says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? God doesn't want your sin to destroy you. He wants to heal you. He wants to forgive you. Jesus talks about this a lot. Listen to these words. From Luke chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus says, the whole reason I came here, the whole reason the Son of God became flesh and lived among us, was because He loves sinners. And He comes to heal sick souls and to call you to repentance and to forgive you and to restore you. As a matter of fact, if you want to know how far God will go, to rescue you in the depths of your love, you just look at the cross of Jesus Christ. I love these words. Some of you know them by heart. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 9. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's glorious news. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. Or, one last scripture on this point. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. I quoted verse 8 a second ago. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. That's rationalization. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves before we deceive anybody else. And the truth is not in us. But then verse 9 says, if we confess our sin... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. i got more texts here, but you've already got the point. It's, it's present in Psalm 51 and the whole witness of Scripture bears it out. If you come to God and tell the truth about your sin, God will never reject you. He will forgive you. He will cleanse you. He will accept you. He will begin the process of making you new. That's foundational truth number one. If we want to practice confession, we have to know that. Foundational truth number two is this. The truth of your sin is not the deepest truth about you. The truth of your sin is not the deepest truth about you. Now, 
I could have really stopped after that first foundational truth, but I want to dwell on this one because the longer I'm trying to follow Jesus and the longer I'm trying to help people as a pastor, the more it becomes clear to me that a lot of us have a hard time facing the stuff inside of us because we're terrified that if we tell the truth about our sin, that that's going to be the whole truth and that'll mean we're worthless and we're hopeless. The Bible frees us to tell the truth about our sin because it says our sin is real and our sin is ugly and our sin has pervaded every aspect of ourselves. It's really bad news, but it's not the deepest truth about us. Let me try and show you this. I mean, we can see the ugly truth about sin in this text. For example, look at verse 5. This is a pretty bad verse. I mean, it's a good verse so far as it makes us face the truth, but the truth is ugly. Psalm 51, verse 5, David cries out, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I'm going to talk about those words, iniquity and sin, in a moment. But here he's saying, God, as, as I face the behavior, the destructive behavior that I've done that hurt people and dishonored you, I'm recognizing that from before I was born, there's something bent and twisted inside of me. There's something wrong with me. The darkness inside of me, God, is destructive and it's scary. But how can he say that and not despair? How can he say that and not lose hope? Well, part of it is because, he, as we already said in verse 1 and verse 17, he knows God's mercy. But the other thing is that this is the same guy that wrote Psalm 139. Let me read you verses 13 and 14 of Psalm 139. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows, knows it full well. This is interesting. Same guy in one psalm prays, God, you created me and everything you create is awesome. So you created me awesome. And I praise you for making me wonderful. And in a different psalm, he prays, I've been bent and twisted and broken since before I was born. How do we hold those together? We could go further. Last week, we were looking at a psalm celebrating God as the good creator of a good creation. And I quoted to you from 1 Timothy 4.4, where it says, Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected. If it's received with thanksgiving. And I read that several times. Remember this? Everything created by God is good. Everything created by God is good. And then I told you, you were created by God. And you got it. And, and you said, you repeated after me, we are good. And some of y'all felt really good about that. And some of y'all got nervous about me becoming a theological liberal. Because you know that in Mark chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says, no one is good except God alone. So which is it? Which of those verses is true? That's a trick question. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, they're both true. There is a, there's several senses in which God alone is good. God alone is good in that He's the source of all goodness. He's the infinite, eternal fountain of all goodness. All the good things come from Him and are good by participation in His goodness. But He's also the only one good in the sense that every human being has been terribly tainted by sin. And yet it's also true that everybody's made in the image of God. So, so if you're sitting here wrestling with this and, and trying to explain it, so which is it? Am I good or am I bad? The biblical answer is yes. The answer is yes. Your essence is the image of God. You're made in the image of God. And the image of God is very, very good. But sin has touched and corrupted every part of you. If you hold the biblical witness together, it's like this. You are God's masterpiece. 
But God's masterpiece has been vandalized. We can add to this the, the truth of redemption that 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a what? Somebody knows. Everybody say, new creation. He's begun this work of restoration, so we sent in the little art specialist with the little magnifying glass and the little brushes and this masterpiece. Just imagine somebody broke into the Met and took some spray paint and just started covering up all the great masterpieces, and now you got this little artist patiently working on it. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing in our lives. He's restoring that marred masterpiece. Your essence is good, created by God, but all of you has been touched by sin. And I'm going to go theological for just a second. So if you don't like the academic theology thing, you can fall asleep for about 180 seconds. If you like it, you can tune in. Isaiah, you don't have to lay down when you're doing it, bro. <laughs> I did give you permission to fall asleep. You've got to fake it at least. So Christians throughout the ages at different times have emphasized different aspects of this reality. And sometimes people play them against each other as if what major teachers of the church are saying is contradictory because some of them are emphasizing the inherent dignity and essential goodness of human beings and others are emphasizing the fallenness and brokenness of human beings. But actually, if you go deeper, there's an incredible consistency. Not to say there aren't differences. There are differences. But there's an incredible coherence to this. And what Christian teachers have been saying throughout the ages is that your essence is the image of God, which means you're made to reflect God's goodness and glory. And so and in your essence, you are good. And yet sin has corrupted every part of you. Let me just show it to you. John Calvin is one of those theologians who is well known for emphasizing human sinfulness. Okay, and he talks about it a lot. And yet John Calvin, when he writes about Jesus's teaching to love your enemies, says this. One of the things it means to love your enemies is that we are not to reflect on the wickedness of men. That's interesting from John Calvin, who reflects a lot on the wickedness of men. But there's another sense in which he says we are not to reflect on the wickedness of men, but but look to the image of God in them. An image which covering and obliterating their faults should by its beauty and dignity allure us to love and embrace them. John Calvin's probably the theologian who, more than anybody, emphasized the profound damage that sin has done to human beings. But when he teaches us how to love people, he says, don't focus on their faults. And he doesn't just say, forgive them like God forgave you. He says, their faults are not the deepest truth about them. Look deeper, and what you find in every human being is the image of God, which is so resplendently beautiful that all their faults begin to fade as you see the beauty of their humanity. Or we could go to the other way. Thomas Aquinas, great theologian, and he emphasized the potential and the natural goodness of human beings, even after the fall, to a degree that many Protestants have criticized. And yet, he clearly taught that every aspect of our humanness has been corrupted by sin. For example, he writes that after the first sin of Adam and Eve, and Eve Every human being being has abundant, inordinate emotional movements in the lower appetite. What does that mean? He means there's a lot of stuff that you want really bad that will destroy you if you get what you want. Not only that, he goes on to write and say, hey, desire itself is good, but we have desires that are haywire. There's things we should want really bad that we barely want at all. There's things that are not that important that we crave profoundly. And he says, God has given us the gift of reason which is supposed to order those appetites. But the problem is, 
he goes on to write that the light of wisdom by which God illumined the human being when the will was subject to God was lacking in reason. What does he mean this? Our reason itself has been corrupted such that now it is often subject to our appetites rather than the other way around. What does that mean? A lot of times we think that something's going to be good for us and then we go for it and we discover it's not good for us. But sometimes we know something's not good for us and we do it anyway. I mean, if you want just a simple, straightforward example, how many of us have had that conversation where we're looking at that second portion of dessert and we're having the conversation with ourselves? I know this is a bad idea. I've heard that gluttony is a sin, but also this is just going to cause me pain later. Right? And our reason tells us this desire is inordinate. It's not good for us. But we want it anyway. And then we can do this thing Aquinas is talking about where we use our powers of reason in a way that is not illumined by God's wisdom and we start explaining reasons. That's okay, I'm going to hit the gym extra hard tomorrow. God said to f- that we should feast and celebrate His goodness. This is probably like an act of worship, right? And we start explaining all the reasons why this is a great idea. And it's kind of funny, kind of, if we're talking about that second dessert. But it's a little bit different if we're talking about I know I shouldn't work these extra hours because my relationships at home are suffering. Because God's calling me to be more involved in ministry and in serving others. I know I shouldn't. I know this isn't what's best. I don't want to commit the same mistake that everybody makes about I'm going to keep striving and striving and striving to be successful and climb some ladder and find out there's nothing at the top of the ladder. I know better than that. That's not me. But we want it. So we start using our powers of reason to say, Well, if I just get a little ahead, once I meet this saving goal and once I get this promotion, then I'll have time to devote to spiritual disciplines and to sharing the gospel in my community and to spend time with our kids. And you know how that goes. What is my point? Human beings, we're both good and bad. Your essence is that you're made in the image of God. So everybody say, I am the image of God. And yet, sin has messed up every part of you. Say, sin has messed me up. So we need to tell the truth about our sin so that we can be healed. But while you're telling that truth, just know it's not the whole truth and it's not the deepest truth about you. The deepest truth is that God made you good and God loves you and Jesus died to redeem you so that the sin is temporary. It's going to be wiped out and you're going to be glorified to reign with Christ forever. That's the deepest reality. Okay, two foundational truths and probably got about five minutes left for a couple more pages of my notes. So everybody say prayer. All right, here's some practical lessons about confession. I'm going to go fast here. Some practical lessons about confession from Psalm 51. I'm going to go fast and you have to go study the psalm all week. Deal? If you don't commit to this, then I'm just going to go long. You're going to commit to it? All right, I got a commitment, Devin. That's all I need, bro. Psalm 51, practical lessons. Confession begins by appealing to God's mercy and love. It's so important to understand that the ability to truly tell, to face the reality of the depths of our sin, we really can't do it unless we're rooted and grounded in the knowledge of God's character as the loving and merciful God who revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ. Just look at verse 1 again. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Confession begins by appealing to the mercy and love of God. Second point, confession unflinchingly names the evil inside of us. It unflinchingly names the evil inside of us. Doesn't hide it. As a matter of fact, let me just make a few points about the vocabulary of sin in this passage. If you look in the first two verses, you'll already see three words for the evil inside of us, which recur throughout the passage. Sin, iniquity, and transgression. And that vocabulary expands as we go. 
I'll mention just one other, blood guiltiness. Let's put those four words together and see what the picture is David is painting. Sin is a word which the, the basic root meaning is missing the mark. Missing the mark. So picture a big target and the bullseye is your potential. Your bullseye is what you've made, you've been made to be that reveals the beauty and goodness of God. And it's awesome if human beings actually live like that bullseye, but there's only one human being who's ever hit the bullseye. Who's that? Jesus, Jesus, the God man, fully God and perfect human being. All the rest of us have missed the mark rather desperately. And in missing the mark, we have dishonored our Lord and we have debased ourselves. That's the basic meaning of sin. Iniquity is another word that's used here. And the root meaning here is bent or twisted. So when he says, I I was conceived in iniquity, what he's saying is, from before I was born, there was something twisted or turned inside of me, such that, like we said a second ago, I've got all these good, this good potential from God, but it turns towards evil. I've got these inclinations to, to get what I want. I want what I want when I want it. And I, as my friend Harold Bullock, pastor down in Fort Worth, says, I want what I want when I want it. I think I deserve what I want, and I'm willing to hurt you if you'll get in my way. Basic definition of what it means that we're bent by sin. This word transgression has to do with rebellion against God's authority. God is the king. He's the lawmaker. Paul says sin is lawlessness. We've all rebelled against his authority. So sin is about the corruption of my nature, but it's also, as one theologian put it, cosmic rebellion. It's a stiff arm to God. He says, you don't deserve to be king. And David says, that, that's what's in my heart and that's what's coming out in my actions. And then there's this word blood guiltiness, which shows up in verse 14, which causes us to recognize that our sin is not only a corruption of our nature and a rebellion against God, but it hurts other people. Blood guiltiness means an innocent life has been taken because of my sin. I've hurt other people. So David teaches us when we confess our sins, we begin by appealing to God's mercy and love, but then we unflinchingly name the evil inside of us. Third point about how to confess our sins. Confession takes full responsibility for our behavior and doesn't shift the blame. This is maybe the hardest part for most of us. Look at verses 3 through 5. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I'm going to come back to that phrase in a second. But he says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David did not confess his sin until he was confronted and rebuked by the prophet Nathan. I'm going to talk about this story before we wrap up in a second. But now God has named his sin. What you did was evil. It was wrong and I'm angry at it. And David does not do what Saul, David's predecessor, did. When, when the prophet confronted Saul for his sin, Saul said, well, yeah, but I sort of obeyed because I did this, 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 and here's all the reasons why. David doesn't do that. He says, God, anything you want to say about my sin is right. You're right. And then goes to that verse 5 that we looked at earlier. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive. The reason I did sinful stuff is because there's something broken inside of me. He doesn't say, somebody else tempted me. He doesn't say, I've got a deep emotional wound because of how I was treated as a kid. And I'm not making light of that. A lot of us do have deep emotional wounds from how we were treated as kids. And we need God to heal us. And those things add to the temptation factor. But if we use that thing as the explanation of our sin in a way that shirks responsibility, we're blocking the path to healing. 
says, the reason I sinned is because there's sin inside of me. Fourth point, how do you confess sin? Confession deals with the core issue of rebellion against God. Now go back to the beginning of verse 1. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now this is interesting because some of you already know the story, and if you don't, I'm going to tell it in a second, but David's sin involved hurting a lot of other people. And elsewhere in Scripture, it does talk about sinning against other people. In fact, some biblical commentators have criticized David here and says he hasn't really unpacked the degree to which he also sinned against other people. Maybe that's true, but I don't think so. I think there's something else going on here. I think that word blood guiltiness in verse 14 clues us in that David is deeply aware that he has harmed innocent people and that reparations are in order. But I think what he's saying right here is the root issue of sin is my rebellion against God. He identifies the core spiritual problem. And there's some people in this room that you've got some sins that you're ashamed of. And the Holy Spirit has been working on you today about you need to bring that sin into the light. And whatever it is, your bitterness towards somebody who hurts you or your impatience and harshness towards your family members or some addiction to lust or to just substance that you've been abusing or whatever it may be. I don't don't know what the struggle is. But what we're saying here is the root issue is that somewhere in your heart there's rebellion against God. And instead of trusting the Lord to bring healing, you're going somewhere else. And God, in His mercy, He wants to help you. He's patient and He's tender with you. If you'll seek His help. But first, you just need to tell the truth. That your biggest issue is a heart that needs to submit to God. Next point. Confession seeks forgiveness, transformation, and the joy of renewed intimacy with God. It seeks forgiveness, of course. We see this in a bunch of places. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. So David's saying, forgive me, remove the guilt. And there's a picture here of like, my clothes are stained with the blood that I have shed, but God, wash me so that I'm clean. He wants to be forgiven, but that's not all he wants. He wants to be transformed. This is important because if I just want the consequences of my sin removed, but I don't want my heart to be changed, I'm not really confessing. Did you hear that? If you just want the consequences of your sin removed, but you're not seeking God to change your heart, you haven't got to the spiritual discipline of confession yet. Because look at the longing of his heart. For example, in verse 6, he says, Behold, God, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. This is right after he said, I've been bent and crooked since before I was born. But he says, God, if I'm going to have a heart that's healthy with divine wisdom in it, it's got to come from you. And then verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart. Oh, God, and renew a right spirit within me. A right spirit is the opposite of that crooked spirit characterized by iniquity. He's saying, God, give me a heart that longs to honor you and that loves people, that tells the truth and that practices justice and that honors the dignity of my neighbors. Give me an upright heart. He goes on, verse 11, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. He longs for moral and spiritual transformation that leads to renewed intimacy with God and the joy of that relationship with God. Almost done. Confession, though, this part's important. Confession leads to 
public worship and witness. This is crucial because confession and sin, we've been focusing on me and God, but it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 13 and then 15. After you forgive me and restore me and do all the stuff I've asked God, I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Some of you in this room could testify. That is the story of your life. Actually, all of us in the room could testify if we're having a ministry in anybody's lives. But some of you know it very deeply that you were in deep with sin pretty recently and then Jesus changed your life and now you're zealous. And don't you just want everybody to experience his forgiveness? That's what the, where the heart from Christian ministry comes from. I recognize I deserve judgment, but God loved me anyway. And Jesus did everything. He went all the way to the cross so that I could be forgiven and cleansed and restored and renewed. And that joy, now I can't keep it to myself. I want other people to experience it. And it flows out in mission and witness. So that's why we got neighborhood ministry teams and after school program and school ministry teams and all this stuff. We want everybody to experience the joy of God and public worship. Verse 15, oh, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. A life of worship. Finally, confession seeks restoration of the individual at the individual and communal levels. Almost out of time, but don't miss this. Verse 18 and 19. He's been talking about himself this whole time. And then at the end of the psalm, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and the whole burnt and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is fascinating because at the end of the psalm, he says, God bless Jerusalem. God bless your people, Israel. It's not quite clear if David wrote those words or if they were added by the people of Israel in exile. But either way, there's a connection being made from David's experience of sin and seeking renewal to that of the whole community. As an individual, I want to experience intimacy with God and joy and blessing in church. Wouldn't you like to be a spiritually vital church that's full of the Holy Spirit and joy and zeal? That's what it's talking about. I'm done exegeting this text for you. We're about to take a second to have a moment to quietly confess some sin to the Lord and eat the Lord's supper. But I got one, one more thing I want to say to you before I get out of the way. Which is this. I know that even after everything I said, there are people in this room and there's people watching the live stream right now or later. Who you're hearing all that and you're thinking, yes, that's good, but you don't know about the depth of my sin. Somebody's feeling that. You don't know how messed up I am. I'm too far gone. I want to speak to that. Before we take this moment of confession. There's two things I want to say. The second one is much more important than the first one. First one is this. Your sin is not bigger than the sin David is confessing. The story behind this text is in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. You can go read those chapters this week. Some of you know it. David is king. He looks out and sees a beautiful woman, Bathsheba, bathing at the roof of her house. His heart is filled with lust. That's the beginning. But then that lust in his heart, he acts on it by sending his guys, because he's the king, so he has guys to bring Bathsheba. This is not just about lust and adultery, friends. He's king, and he sent his guys to get her, which does not put her in a position to say no, does it? Adultery is really not the right word. I should use stronger words, but I'm already pushing the envelope with kids in the auditorium here. This This is a grievous abuse of power. 
It's not just about lust, it's about injustice. And then, when Bathsheba gets pregnant, he tries to deceive her husband, Uriah, Uriah the Hittite. He wasn't an Israelite, but he left his people to join himself to David and David's army. And David betrayed him, and now he tries to get Uriah the Hittite to go be with his wife so that he'll think the baby is his, but Uriah doesn't because he's more righteous than David in this moment. And he doesn't want to go be with his wife while he's supposed to be out on the battlefield, which is where David ought to be. And so then David orchestrates the death of Uriah the Hittite. There's blood on his hands. This is about lust. It's about a grievous abuse of power. It's about essentially murder. And it's done by someone who should have known better and who didn't need to do this in order to gratify his desires. David has known God from his youth. David knows the holiness and the justice and the mercy and the grace of God. He knows better. Not only that, David has been through a lot of hard times with God, but now God has honored him. And he's king. And he can gratify whatever desires of the flesh he wants to without sinning. He's wealthy. He doesn't need Bathsheba. And this man whom God has honored dishonors God and dishonors and wrongs Bathsheba and wrongs Uriah. It's a grievous sin. And by the way, God disciplines David. The child dies, which is about the biggest grief a parent could have. The child doesn't suffer. The child's with God. But David suffers. But that's not the end. This is going to follow David for the rest of his life. His career and his kingdom and his family is going to be ripped apart by this sin. When he wants to build the temple, God's going to say, no, there's too much blood on your hands. And here we are thousands of 3,000 years later telling the story. How would you like it if your worst moment was being broadcast 3,000 years later? God disciplines David severely. Understand, forgiveness does not mean the absence of temporal consequences. But what, here's the amazing thing. If you're thinking, how could God forgive my sin? David did all that. And when the prophet Nathan rebuked him, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. And, God's, and Nathan says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Lord has forgiven you. I'm not going to hold it against you, David. You can have a relationship with me. It's amazing. But even if your sin was bigger than David's, you need to hear the second reason. That kind of forgiveness would be unjust if it wasn't for the cross of Christ. We could shake our fists and get mad at God and say, how could you let David get away with that? I mean, even with the temporal consequences we just listed, how could you let that sin go unpunished? But it didn't go unpunished. Jesus bore the punishment for David's sin. So the deeper truth that you need to hear, if you're here and you're thinking, yeah, but you haven't taken seriously the depths of my sin, what I want to say is you need to take seriously the depths of the cross. Because your sin is not bigger than the cross of Jesus Christ. It would be blasphemy to think your sin is bigger than the cross of Jesus Christ. God's eternal Son took on human flesh in order to bear your sin and all its consequences on the cross. He died and He said, it is finished. It's paid in full. And there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Which means your sin, as big as it may be, is tiny compared to the cross of Jesus Christ. So now we're going to take a second to confess 
And I don't know where you are spiritually. There's some people in here who maybe came here spiritually seeking. You don't know God at all. And the good news of the gospel is this. If right now you'll just cry out to God and say, I don't know where to start, but I'm really messed up. And I need your forgiveness. I trust Jesus. Forgive my sins. Make me new. He will do that. And then I want you to come talk to me or one of the pastors or one of your friends about how to begin to grow in your relationship with Christ. But also, Christian friends, some of us, I, th- I really believe at an individual level and at the level of our community, the Holy Spirit just wants to fill us in new ways. He wants to empower us in new ways when we turn from the sin that quenches the Spirit. So let's just take a second right now and let's bow our heads. And I want to invite you just to be still before God as we're about to go to the Lord's table and ask the Holy Spirit to show you where the areas of your life that there's sin, there's some area that you're withholding from God, that you just need to confess it, tell the truth about it, and ask God to forgive and to cleanse and to transform you. And then take a moment to confess it to Him. As you've confessed your sin to God, the word of the Lord says, He will not turn away a broken and repentant heart. If you confess your sins, it's forgiven in the name of Jesus. Now I want to ask you just to say one more prayer. Holy Spirit, show me, is there a step of obedience I need to take? A practical step so that your transforming grace can go to work in my life in this area. Lord, I'm so thankful for the gospel. I'm so thankful for Jesus. And as we go to the Lord's table now, I'm thankful for this tangible reminder of Jesus saying, my body is broken for you and my blood is poured out for you and you're forgiven. I pray that your spirit would continue to minister to us now as we go to the Lord's table, revealing to us the depths of your mercy and love and giving us the humility and the courage to make our confession so that we can experience the joy and the power that you want to give. In Christ's name, and all God's people said, Amen.